Amen. If you would keep your heads out and pray with me for a moment this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed as many times as we consider the great price that You preordained before this world began and came to fruition at the fullness of time. In the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ, His propitiatory death bore the wrath that our sin deserved. It was our sin that nailed You there. And You have become our ransom. And a just God can extend His grace and mercy to us because He saw fit to bruise His own. I thank You, Heavenly Father, that the chastisement of our peace was borne upon the stripes, the back, the shoulders, the bruises, the thorns that pierced the brow of our Lord and Savior. Now as we approach Your Holy Word, let the reality the description, applications, the implications, the vast horizons of understanding be opened a little broader to our minds so that we can see and behold Your glorious truth. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for this opportunity and I really thank the Lord for the privilege of sharing together in His Word with you this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 20. Our Psalm of Month series, the second Sunday of the month, has brought us to Psalm chapter 20. This psalm could rightly be labeled a benediction or an invocation, a prayer that David wrote for the choir to sing and for the people of God to pray and sing, to worship with. And it's interesting. I believe he wrote it for himself. And again, as we see throughout the psalms, he was writing at under the influence, the unction of the Holy Spirit, outside of time. The title of this message, however, is a little more provocative than benediction or invocation. I've labeled this talk, Waging Holy War. And hopefully the associations with that title will be informed by these verses themselves as we read here in Psalm chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, how the people of David's day were instructed to engage in spiritual and physical, very real, very present conflict. How were they to be involved with the waging of the wars of David's kingdom, his reign, as well as the ongoing, ever-present reality of spiritual conflict introduced into the heart of man and our environment and surroundings we read of since the fall of man, and we also read of will be concluded at the end of time in Revelation. Psalm 20 has clues, keys, and a form for worship and to uh, organize our thoughts around that will help us deal with the waging war of spiritual conflict that we face today, an ever-present reality, just as it was a reality in some ways in the physical sense under different circumstances, but in the spiritual sense very much the same in David's time as it is in ours. With that introduction, let us read these amazing words. Under the title to the choir master, a psalm of David, we read in Psalm chapter 20 the following, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings 
and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Verse 4, may he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The final verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. There's another verse, two verses, that are among my favorite when I think about the riches and depth of the Word of God. And to just give you an idea of why I've chosen the structure of this message, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but there's another psalm that provides my answer. In Psalm chapter 48, verses 12 and 13, we'll read 14 as well, there's instructions for God's people in regard to their appreciation of Mount Zion, the place where God is pleased to dwell, the conditions of his favor. We can see this in its broadest sense now with the vantage point of the new covenant as God's word resting in the hearts of his people and we, the people of Zion, carrying with us the presence of Jesus Christ in our hearts and being part of his vision for kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and Revelation speaks of the time when all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God. This is Zion for us. Zion, in this time, during the time when the psalm was written, would have been the vision for the tabernacle and more a geographical interpretation and understanding. Nevertheless, these words are so salient and true. David writes in Psalm 48, Walk around Zion, go around her, number her towers, Consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is something that I like to take to heart and try to do, and I would encourage you to do the same. When you are taking in Scripture, I would encourage you to take that imagery also to heart. Walk around it, consider well its towers, its ramparts and citadels. In other words, think deeply and meditate about a psalm like this we read, Psalm number 20. Why are the parts there? What was the context of its instruction? What were the circumstances in David's day? How does it speak prophetically of the future? What hope does it give us that rests outside of time? What would have been a place of resting for the soul to the people of that time and so on? These are the ramparts. These are the citadels. These are the walls, these are the constructs in the word of God of the city of Zion, the place of refuge, the resting point for God's presence and favor and declaration of his, uh, of his constructs to his people that we are called to consider well, meditate on, to memorize, and to make one and the same with our soul so that we can pass them on to others, share them with the next generation and whoever God calls us to reach. 
So with that in mind, I'd like to consider five vantage points. As we walk around the citadel and the towers and the ramparts of Psalm 20, I'm just going to venture five vantage points that we might find. I've labeled them as follows. The first is anthem. We'll consider this psalm as an anthem, a song of war, a hymn of praise, a benediction, and declaration and celebration of victory in conflict. Secondly, we'll consider the vantage point of the author. We'll note the unique relationship of the author to the nature of this psalm, of this work, this piece of poetry, this song that was commissioned to the choir of David's day to sing. Thirdly, the object. Who are the choir to pray for? The term your is used again and again. This pronoun in verse 1, for instance, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. There it occurs as you, it's in the possessive form in verse 3, and regard or and remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. To whom is that pronoun addressed? What is the object of this psalm? Fourthly, the audience. Consider the choir. The title is to the choir master, a psalm of David. Who is called to sing this song in the first interpretation when it was given? But how about for application for us today? Is this a psalm that we, though not born in David's time, are the choir and should now sing? And then finally, occasion. What were the conditions that, that gave the author, namely David, the boldness to say that this is a holy way to wage war in the conflict that surrounds us. First of all, anthem. Let's note the poetic imagery and order of this psalm. Briefly, there's perhaps three sections, at least is helpful for me, for ordering this psalm. It begins with seven petitions that are prefaced by the word may. In verse 1, may. Number one, the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. They continue until here in verse 5, the final petition, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Seven as the number of completion of the scripture. And that final petition is really a summary of all the rest. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This is a beautiful, devotional, personal psalm. Yet it is also a song and an anthem to celebrate during times of conquest and in war. I'll submit to you that only the Holy Spirit moving upon a mere man could produce in, in two parts such amazing aspects of this poem. How could it be that a piece of literature is written that sounds so close to the heart? And that we can take so personally and almost sounds like a lullaby to lay the head of the saint down, to attend the line of the saint's head down on his pillow at night. May the Lord answer you, or you could take it personally. May the Lord answer me in the day of trouble. May the name of God, of the Lord God of Jacob protect me. May he help me from his sanctuary and so on. It's tender language. It is intimate. But it is also more than that. The poetry allows this psalm to incorporate a greater sense of victory, purpose, and peace, even though we're surrounded by conflict. And David was one who often his pillow was not a conventional one, not filled with the down of our luxurious homes that we normally have today, but often a rock or a bedroll or a 
piece of clothing, a makeshift place to rest his head while he was a fugitive during the time of his tenure. After he was anointed king, and even after he became king, he was often, perhaps most often, away at war. When David did rest his head in a way that was inappropriate with his calling, indulging the luxury of his surroundings, that lullaby, as it were, that misplaced appropriation of his time was jarred awake when he felt himself falling into sin. So although this poem is, yes, language that floods our heart with peace, also know that it does not rest on the condition of all is calm and all is well in our life circumstances to feel this way or to have this sense in our heart. We can have the peace of a sovereign lullaby flood our heart and mind in the midst of the worst and most trying conflict in this hour if we simply put our trust in the right place. As this psalm unfolds, it provides for us the contrast where the trust and confidence of the world, the trust and confidence of the saint lie. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When we are surrounded by enemies on every side, spiritually and physically, in any shape, manner, and form that the enemy can possibly wield against us. I'm here to tell you, according to other scriptures, namely this psalm and also Proverbs 18.10, that the name of the Lord is a sufficient bulwark. It's a strong tower, and the righteous can run into it and be safe no matter who the assailants are, no matter how threatening the adversity is on all sides. These are the context in which the seven petitions are offered, yes, in, in peace, but also in the context of trial. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name, verse 1, of the God of Jacob protect you. Briefly, the day of trouble again refers to the con- context of conflict, this universal reality that we find introduced into our experience all the way from Genesis 3. God declared as judgment for sin, I will put enmity between you and the seed of this woman. Conflict will be a reality for us from now until Christ returns, from now until the grave. However, peace through the strong name of the Lord can also be an abiding reality for the believer in spite of the conflict. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And when we hear the name of God evoked in Scripture, invoked in Scripture, and when we hear that patriarchal reference to Jacob, our mind is flooded with various applications and various connotations from the greater portion of Scripture. When we hear the name of God referred to as the God of Jacob, we can recall all that the patriarch Jacob and those connected to his lineage Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those before all the way to Adam, those succeeding him all the way to the present day, all according to the covenant lineage of Christ's blood-bought elect people, all that they witnessed to and through their calling, all that they witnessed to them in time and all that they witnessed through them for all of time, the manifest perfections of God's character that intervene on Jacob's behalf. You might ask yourself, why is Jacob often used 
as the point of reference to describe the great aspects, character, attributes of our God. It's partially because Jacob himself was not a very good role model of those attributes himself. Jacob was a conniver. He had sin issues. He lied. He colluded with his mother to deceive his father. In that way, he did not honor his parents uniformly in his life. He was banished. He had to experience consequences of his sin. He talked about conflict. He was a man who wrestled spiritual forces, even positive ones, as we see in these bouts with the spiritual world. He found himself wrestling an angel. That angel touched his leg and put it out of joint. But he was also a man, in spite of his failure and frailty, who had the privilege of witnessing the interactive providences, grace, and mercy of his God. And David's imperfe- I'm sorry, Jacob's imperfections and shortcomings and failure and faults in his character only amplified the perfections of a holy and gracious God. Jacob experienced adversity on all sides, both in warring tribes around him, his own brother's animosity. Some of it was not due to his own character, but many of it was self- much of it was self-inflicted. Yet the God of Jacob was sufficient and powerful through his holy name to preserve that patriarch in spite of the many and varied assailants within and without that he faced on a day-to-day basis. This is our God. This is the name that protects us in similar adversity. This is the name that was invoked at this time so Israel would have a record in their mind of God's faithfulness in the past so as to give them great peace for the present. Verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Here in this third petition, again prefaced by may, may he send you help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. We see as is characteristic of the Psalms, Hebraic poetry, there's parallelism here. The author David, he doesn't just mention sanctuary But he adds a little bit and reinforces the idea by accompanying that term with Zion. Sanctuary in Zion. The places, the circumstances where God's favor is pleased to dwell. It's a blessable situation. God's covenant terms had been satisfied in Zion and in his sanctuary. The necessary atoning blood had been shed for the remission of sins. This sanctuary, this situation where God's favor was present because the conditions have been met through sacrificial atonement was the sanctuary, was the Zion, was the assurance that help would come. This psalm does not ask for God's intervention without affirming that his requirements for intervention must be satisfied. But it also affirms that the satisfaction of God's requirements for divine intervention and the redemptive situation that we so need as fallen man is based ultimately and essentially on His grace and mercy. The atoning sacrifices of the Old Covenant fulfilled in the blood of Christ in the New, they were both, one, prefigured and symbolized in picture form, and then fulfilled in Christ, they both represented the sanctuary in Zion. 
the place of refuge wherein the circumstances for God's intervention and salvation were met. If you are under the blood of your Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't you only expect that He would save you for everything that He has called you to do according to His purposes? Absolutely. Not on the basis of your work, but on the blood of His Son. God will not let the blood of His Son be wasted. It will effectively accomplish everything it was intended to perfect and to perform and to purchase. And herein is the context of surety for answered prayer. This was the surety that was invoked at the time that David wrote this psalm. And this is an, an, a surety that we can experience an even greater level today as we take this psalm to heart. Verse 3. I'm sorry, I'm going to bring you. Yes, verse 3, petition 4. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Again, that parallelism. May he remember your offerings. May he regard with favor your sacrifices. And this, as it overlaps with Zion and the sanctuary, was what took place in order for the grounds of intervention to be met in the place of God's favor and choosing as we've already described in the sacrifices. It was a demonstration of the propitiatory necessity of a sacrifice to die so that our cause could be justly answered by a holy God. This prayer for salvation and intervention and salvation from the enemies that were around them was absolutely founded and based on God's prerequisite conditions for His glory to be maintained and His people to be saved. Let's not fall out of step with this vision and offer cheap prayers of salvation that don't first affirm that the ground of our very request is only available in our Lord Jesus Christ. Petition 5 and verse 4. May He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. There the parallel idea, desires and plans. Once the conditions are in place that we just read, now our heart's desire and our plans, or the heart's desires and the plans of the King most specifically applied in this psalm can be fulfilled. And the verse that rushes to my mind in New Testament fullness and fulfillment would be Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things would be added unto you. This petition of our heart's desires and plans being fulfilled and answered is again conditional upon our hearts asking that which is in accordance with His will. And this psalm gives us a great pattern for doing exactly that as we read again a petition in verse 5, this is petition number 6, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. Again, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of God, set up our banners. The parallel idea there being salvation and banners as key words. And a brief study in a few commentaries and Bible dictionaries gave me the following definitions and associations with the term banner and salvation 
as David is describing here, it has this sense of an importation of God's protection and his presence and his aid to his people. And that term banner there is a symbol. It was a type and a token uh, that was used in war. We do have some familiarity with this even in flags of nations and the standard that goes and proceeds and flies above over troops in battle. Oftentimes in warfare situations at the time, the context when this psalm was written, there would be a signal flag that would be set up on the highest place that that geography could afford. So when the people who were assembled, the armies were assembled for war, saw that signal flag raised on that lofty position, and they heard the trumpet sounded, they knew that it was time to engage as one, the enemy. And so that signal demonstrated that the conditions were perfect, the conditions were just right, according to the discernment and wisdom of their commander, the best possible scenario to get them their greatest chance for victory, and they marched forward, and if their commander was worth his salt, they routed the enemy. What was the salt the commander was required to have? We'll see that in greater degree through the course of this message. He was called to have wisdom, certainly in relationship to the circumstance in front of him, but more important than that, he was called to convey and to rest on, even as every one of his soldiers ought to as well, the name of the Lord as their ultimate weapon, ultimate refuge, ultimate source in grounds for victory. This is the banner of our God. This is the token signal flag that is placed on a high place. It is this that our general and our commander, our King of Kings, Jesus Christ, raises upon the death of his own flesh that lets us know the victory is accomplished. If we align ourselves with the battle plan of his purposes for his kingdom by the signal flag of his death and resurrection raised high on that hill of Calvary, we are assured victory. What better banner could there possibly be? What more reassuring sign sign that our wise commander will gain us the victory? Think back for a moment to the context when these warfare and skirmishes in a real you know, physical sense would have been going on in David's time. By this time, David would have proved himself an absolute living legend in regard to military campaign among the people of his day. He was a war hero par excellence. When David had just a ragtag band, a motley crew of dissidents, as it were, at least they were considered such by the kingdom of Saul at the day, when they were running for their life without so much as an organized army, just on the loyalty and purpose and anointing of God that David's mighty man shared with him alone, they were able to rout armies of thousands. David himself single-handedly, inspired and moved upon by the Holy Ghost, with a weapon of choice that was a primitive you know, sling that was meant to deter, or at least to distract and discourage a lion or a bear from attacking his sheep, was able to knock over a nine-foot-plus tall giant with superior ammunition and armament such that every other soldier in the land was scared by the very sound of his voice and his visage and presence. This is the David, the commander. This was the commander-in-chief, the executive officer over the troops of that day. So when David lifted up 
the signal flag, especially by this time after I assumed he's king, on that high place and said, all right, my soldiers, now is our best opportunity to thwart the enemy, to march upon the troops. I'm sure to a man, the army and generals that he had assembled under him would have been absolutely loyal to the end. David had proved and demonstrated he was a capable, wise, strong, confident commander in battle. But this is an appeal to a more superior commander indeed. One whose wisdom is perfect and unsearchable. So far above our own that no mind of man could ever compare to what he retains in his consciousness. He not only knows the future, he shapes the future. He not only can plan in advance and strategize against the enemy's every move. He has ordained the very end from the very beginning. He is our Alpha and the Omega. So when that banner is raised, when that salvation plan is executed, when that commander's wisdom is at the counsel of God's people, there ought to be a surety and confidence rising in the hearts of every blood-bought spiritual warrior assembled behind their champion, Jesus Christ, such that this army, though few in number, will never be discouraged or deterred. This high place with its signal flag is a declaration of war. It's a vow of allegiance in the words of Charles Spurgeon. It's an index of perseverance. It's a claim of possession. It's a signal of triumph, a vow of allegiance, a declaration of war, an index of perseverance, a claim of possession, a signal of triumph. May the Lord grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God, set up our banners. And in that context, as the faith of all those images that we glean from the greater portion of Scripture and its historical context and spiritual context, we can surely share the faith and the boldness and confidence that this line, this summary petition, must have been sung by the choir of David's day. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Talk about assurance for answered prayer. We have it when the conditions are right. Secondly, in this anthem, we see there's a conflict of allegiance. We see that there are those who trust in the kind of things that are referred to in the opening portions of this psalm. But there are then the greater portion, the majority, and most of the men who trust in things that the arm of flesh promises to purchase for them, even though it fails them repeatedly. Verses 6 through 8 read, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. And again, anointed is the qualifier there. If there's an anointing on the purposes, there is an absolute there is an absolute assurance that they will be fulfilled. He will answer him from his holy heaven. If he reigns in heaven, isn't the earth nothing short of his footstool? With the saving might of his right hand, that which he purposes and wills to accomplish. Then verse 7 is on the contrasting side. This conflict of confidence is seen in the worldly wisdom and the worldly sources of boldness. Some, on the other hand, he says, trust in chariots and some in horses. Again, but we, by contrast, will trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. They collapse and fall. Sometimes their very weapons they've assailed for themselves, they trip over because of their own weight. Chariots and horses are symbolic, again in Scripture, of the combined ability of man and his autonomous, that means his self-will exercised and rebelliously as apart from God, his means of defending himself and gaining purity confidence for the future. Perhaps most drastically pictured in contrast at the exodus of God's people themselves. Where did the chariots and horses get the pursuers of God's people when Moses led the faithful out of Egypt into the promised land at the Red Sea? Those very war machines, those very intimidating forces for the Pharaoh's will, apart from God's, became boat anchors for the greatest army that this imperial age had ever known. The superior technology of the day only sunk them faster to the bottom of the Red Sea. It only assured their own destruction. It only assailed them in the way. It only was the pit that the fool had dug, he thought, would trap that which he was warring against and indeed became his own undoing. Chariots and horses, they're no assurance of victory. They're no grounds for faith. Today and in our day, the application is almost too easy. You can make it yourself. Ask yourself this question. Do we live in a kingdom, in an era, where our generals and leaders are placing and projecting a hope and a security in technology, in their battle plans, and superior power and force in a war machine? Well, of course. We see it to the nth degree. We see it historically and more gigantic proportions than the Egyptians could ever dream of. After all, what is a nuclear bomb to a man in a chariot? But I'll tell you what a nuclear bomb is to those who are armed inside of the strong tower of the name of the Lord. It is nothing but another boat anchor for a fool. It will not thwart God's purposes. It is not a sufficient place to hide behind. It does not justify your cause or ensure your victory. Today, the same as it was then, the only source of confidence that any people, kingdom, or person will ever know is an allegiance with a sanctified, anointed purposes of an almighty God who shaped this universe with his fingers, holds the heart of the king as a stream of water in his own hands, and at a brush of his very just palm can wipe out whole people groups and eradicate nations off the face of the earth. God laughs. He holds the nations in derision. They're like potsherds of clay against the iron rod of his authority. And it doesn't matter how big their war machine is. If you set an iron pot against a rod, or a clay pot against a rod of iron, no one but a fool would ever place his money to wager that that piece of pottery would withstand the impact of that iron implement. And that is the hand of our God against every other opportunity, every other uh, thing that man rallies his confidence around that is something other than the name and a trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, the kingdom, the world, 
and anyone who places their trust in anything aside from the Lord our God collapse and fall. But on that final day, we will rise and stand upright. This conflict of confidence reaches its ultimate resolution in the final pages of our great book right here. And we can allude to those references later in Revelation as the conquering warriors, the saints aligned with their champion, finally sing the ultimate victory song. But here's a song for us in the interim. In the meantime, when it looks frightening to the eyes of man, we can instead walk by faith and say, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God, not in chariots and horses. And finally, as we consider anthem, and don't worry, this is the greater portion of the message as we kind of analyze the beauty of this psalm. Verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And here we have the signal summary. The summary, the consolidated prayer request. In a word, if I could reiterate and say it again, Lord, in this phrase, save the king. And may he answer us when we call. May our petitions rise before you in this context of worship. And may we experience your signal favor. Let's consider the author for just a moment. Note the unique relationship of the author of this psalm to those he wrote it for. David writes to the choir master a psalm of David. But now notice how the psalm is laid out. First verse, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the Lord of God, or may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Who is the you? We talk, we'll talk about that a little bit greater in the next, uh, or to a little bit greater degree in the next point. But here David is writing a song for the people to sing about him. This psalm's most immediate interpretation would be a psalm for his subjects to sing upon the victory that he as representative head of the people would gain. After David had gone out and been obedient to the Lord and routed the foes of the Lord and the foes of Israel, the choir master would strike up this psalm that their king had written for them for the occasion. May he send us help from sanctuary. May he give us support in Zion. Perhaps they would sing this before they march to war. May he remember all our offerings and regard with favor our burnt sacrifices. As David and the people were careful not to engage in any campaign, if they fulfilled the spirit of this psalm without first considering God's will and purposes. But to a greater degree, let's interpret this psalm according to its spiritual authorship. This was a psalm not limited in application to David's time where he writes to give the choir something to sing after and before a military campaign was waged in ancient Israel. But this is a psalm that Jesus has written through the Holy Spirit, breathing out through the words and pens of his authors, in this case, David, for us to sing about his victory in the future. What words do we have to offer the Lord that are worthy of his name that he hasn't breathed already? If he is the sum total of everything that is worthy of consideration and worship, then we have nothing else to give him except what he has given us already. In Romans 8.26, we read these glorious promises, how the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit gives us prayer 
and prays for us and gives us the things that we ought to focus our attention on because we often don't know how to pray as we ought. The beauty of the Word of God is like this. Though we can be so stressed out by the immediate stress of our conflict, we don't even have the words coming to mind to wage war against it. We can very simply turn to a psalm like this and find that a worship song, a song of victory and praise, a benediction, an invocation, a prayer that would be the precursor to a victorious campaign has already been written. We are the choir. The Spirit is the author. He's written us a song of victory to sing. So take it up in your hour of need. Take it up in your hour of conflict. That's the relationship of the author to the object. Who is the choir? We've already mentioned it's David writing for those who are his subjects. David presumably would sing the song, perhaps even lead it. That's its immediate application. The king was a symbolic representative of his people. I'm sorry, I should say the following as well in regard to object. We're really dealing with the you there. Who is the one that this psalm is addressed to? Uh, We answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary. Well, again, the most immediate application there is David. David is the you. He's the representative of the people. May our general, may our leader experience help in the day of trouble. May the Lord give him wisdom, protect him as he leads us into battle. But think of it in a little bit bigger picture as well. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 44, the temple is commissioned. And there's a prayer of dedication as Solomon, who was king, and David's son leads God's people in prayer. And during that service, that worship service and dedication, Solomon explains, he says, may the people beseech your presence presence at the place of your favor here before they march out against their enemies. So who is this psalm asking God to show favor upon? Well, immediately it was David. But we might also turn it into a prayer that future, they would have, I'm sure, that future kings and leaders would be worthy of the answers of this prayer as well. And now we can take this fast forward to our time today. Let's pray that the kings of our day would fulfill the necessarily prerequisites so that what they march on, their policies, the things that they will to do are blessable according to the name of the Lord, our God. Who Can we pray this prayer? Let me get very specific about our king, as it were. Barack Obama, the president of this land. Verse 4, may he grant you, Obama, your heart's desire and fulfill, Obama, all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, Obama. And in the name of our God, set up our banners and so on. I'll stop reading right there. It sounds akin to blasphemy, does it not? Why? Why? Could it be? And I don't care, regardless of political party, let the Word of God be the judge. I'm not here to be partisan as far as man is concerned. 
I'm here to be partisan as far as the name of the Lord. Our God is concerned, but do we have the assurance in relationship to the Word of God that the heart's desires of our leaders may be granted right now and their plans be fulfilled right now and God's name also be glorified? And if such is not the case, let us pray. Let us pray. Well, we need to pray. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 instructs us to pray for our leaders and people who are in positions of authority. But I would counsel us, according to the context of Psalm 20, let's not pray for our leaders as though they have the power to save us. Let's pray instead that they would be, that they would be those for whom God could intervene on account of His holy will. In other words, dear God, give my leaders, give our leaders the policies that if they came true, your will would also come true. And when I say will, I mean God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm talking about the answer to the prayer that our Lord Christ envisioned when he gave us that model. Now this week, by way of illustration, I mean, there, is many, there are many that I could bring up. But let me, if I may, just bring up one. There was a man who was supposed to, Louis Giglio is his name, a pastor who, ha, who is a believer, and actually our worship leader, Mark, who has since moved to Montana, attended one of his conferences that was a worship conference and gathering a year ago. This man, because of his, he's taken up in a Christian calling the cause of human trafficking, he sought to affect that great atrocity and injustice and as far as the Word of God defines it for the glory of God and see an end to it. And that is all very laudable and sound. Well, because of this laudable cause, he came um, to the attention of someone or those within Obama's administration. He was invited to give a benediction, believe it or not which would be a prayer very similar to this one at Obama's second inauguration coming up shortly. A benediction sounds like, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Let me read to you a statement from a person, Addy Wise Knotts or something like that. Not sure exactly how to pronounce it. From the Presidential Inaugural Committee. You see, Giglio became, fell out of favor with a liberal watchdog group because it surfaced that 15 years ago he preached the biblical position as I judge and the word will judge uh, um, ultimately on homosexuality. And this was the response to his resignation over pressure to withdraw his invitation as a result of the controversy his position engendered. This comes directly from the administration. We were not aware of Pastor Giglio's past comments at the time of his selection, and they don't reflect our desire to celebrate the strength and diversity of our country at this present inaugural. And remember, the issue here is homosexuality. Pastor Giglio was asked to deliver the benediction in large part because of his leadership in combating human trafficking around the world. As we now work to select someone to deliver the benediction, we will ensure their beliefs reflect this administration's vision of inclusion and acceptance for all Americans. Let us ask this question. What is 
the desire to celebrate the strength and diversity of our country actually mean in the words of an administrator from Obama's own committee here for his inauguration. What are the values, the desires, the plans that are encapsulated and represented when we read beliefs reflecting this administration's vision of inclusion and acceptance for all Americans? You see what I'm getting at here? Psalm 20 is imminently, it's absolutely applicable to our context of events that are unfolding before us this very week. We must pray that the heart's desires and the plans, the administrative policies of our leader, of our king today are blessable according to God. And if they are not, we have no assurance of peace. We have no assurance that judgment will be deferred. We have no assurance that we will be victorious as far as we define it in the future of America, as far as the future of America is concerned. What are, finally, we've talked about these aspects, anthem, author, object, and audience. Here, this fourth aspect, the choir is the audience. They are the ones who sing. They are the king's subjects in time. They are the citizens of the world governments throughout all time. We mentioned 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, and we just mentioned how it's our duty to pray that God would move on the hearts of our leaders so that we might live peaceably and that we might be in a circumstance which God can find his, a, a sufficient place for His favor to rest and reside. And finally, the subjects are Christ's subjects for all of time. Now we as the audience, the choir, we may not at this time be able to sing this song in relationship to our leaders. We, not, we may not be able to sing of the Speaker of the House, Lord, answer him in the day of trouble. May the Lord God protect him. May the Lord grant him his, the, uh, his heart's desire and fulfill all of his plans. We may not be able to a rightly pray this prayer right now, depending on the policy positions in relationship to the Word of God of even the mayor of Cross Lake. Let the Word of God be the judge. But here's the hopeful thought I want to leave you with. We can always pray this prayer as the audience in the choir of our ultimate leader and Lord, Jesus Christ. The final and decisive cycles of conflict as we mentioned at the opening of this service, are listed in Revelation. We read in Revelation 11, verses 17 through 18, the kind of worship songs that are sung in the heart of Psalm 20 when the you and the your, that is the object of the anthem, are the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read one more reference for you, and this is from Revelation chapter 15. This is another cycle of judgment. Cycle number three in the book of Revelation. And it says, I saw, verse 2, chapter 15, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Let me pause there and note 
that Moses is used as an example. He's referred to as an example of a king or a leader who aligns himself with God's will and purposes. Though not imperfect, he lived, as Hebrews records, faithful and in all his house as a testimony for those who would come afterwards. We ought not to give our allegiance to a king in a way that would pray for God's blessing upon them short of repentance for anyone who does something less than the vision of Moses today. God will give us in His grace, repentance, and will in His time in choosing to raise up these leaders. Suffice it to say, our assurance does not rest upon the fact that we are serving under one right now. Because we always serve under the servant of God who is the Lamb, and His song is as follows for all time. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Blessed is he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Finally, occasion. What are the conditions for waging holy war? This psalm presumes conditions. There is a just, albeit trying, conflict and engagement of the conflict that is in view here. You might ask the question, and I hope you always do, by what standard could a conflict, even a physical one, a war that we might face in our own lifetime, or a conflict in real terms, in real time, both in the spiritual and physical sense around us, what context could we presume would, would render it just and our allegiance with a particular side and our cause and relationship to it one that is worth pursuing? And although it's trying, trust that we are on the right side of God's will and purposes. Two references we won't explore at length today, but I hope to in the near future. You can write them down for points of reference. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy 20. The culture of David's time was premised on the law which was given, which gave God's people sufficient rules of order for even the engagement of troops of enemy soldiers. And Deuteronomy listed at length. It's very interesting. The first person called to speak to the people was not the general, was not the commander, was not the civil leader, it was the priest. There was an endorsement in policy form that reflected an implicit trust in the name of the Lord. And next, the officers would speak, and finally, the commanders. And the officers would let anyone who had just been married, anyone who had just purchased land, and anyone who was afraid go home. They weren't required to fight. Why? Because they knew their most powerful weapon was the name of the Lord. Not the numbers of the soldiers in the fight. Not the horses. Not the chariots. But the premise that their cause was just. That the policies and their policies reflected this trust in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> they knew like Gideon did, especially upon his victory, that 300 men facing thousands following the will of God was far better odds than 3,000 facing 300 trusting in horses and chariots. The rules of engagement for God's people make a priority the heart and the call and the cause 
that God has in relationship to his kingdom before the safety of man through the tools of man is, con- is accounted for. <clears throat> and then the other point of reference is Deuteronomy 17, which is admonition that kings don't as- assemble for themselves an undue war machine. Finally, this situation that David was facing did not warrant, first and foremost, a strategic alliance, <coughs> superior, <coughs> excuse me, superior firepower, expert planning and execution, diverse counsel, preemptive strikes, shock and awe, show of force, international sanctions, aggressive diplomacy. Instead, the situation warranted a detailed scrutiny in light of the Word of God, a searching of the hearts of the will of God and the will of God according to Scripture that would, in the end, inform and lead the people to endorse a state of mind and policies that would reflect a trust in the name of the Lord their God. And I submit to you on a national level, if anything close to this by way of application begins to be a priority before we consider moving forward in any regard and in any situation, we are repenting. But until such time, we stand in need of repentance and therefore the people of God, we need to pray. As the people of God, we need to pray. Let us pray that our cause would be blessable and let us stand rest assured that whatever cause we support in our prayer in our alliances, that it is blessable in spite of the world around. And that way we can celebrate that our victory is ultimately won, not through the promise of chariots and horses, but in the promise of the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us a refuge, a cleft in the rock, an island of security, a remote place in the sea of conflict that is unassailable by the power of the enemy. Lord, there has never been and never will be a fiery dart whose flame will burn bright enough, whose velocity is strong enough, and whose enemy is coy enough to impregnate the shield of faith. It remains unassailable as an armament for the soldier of Jesus Christ. Only let us have it at the ready. Let us have it at the fore. Teach us to trust your word. And if we feel the pressing circumstances of conflict, be it spiritual or physical, in any sense, let us raise up that standard, that banner over us. Let us shout for joy and salvation as we remember the victorious battle cry of our Lord Jesus Christ that echoes from the halls of eternity He is risen. He is risen. I thank you, Lord, that you have ascended and you rule and reign. And all of history is marching forward toward that final day when the kingdoms of this world will, because they have on the purchase power of Jesus' blood, become the kingdom of our God. Oh, what a great privilege to be a soldier in that army. And though we may give our life here, our eternal life is secure. And we will soon wear those blood-drenched robes, now purified and white. And we will assign, Lord, we will be aligned behind our triumphant, conquering King, riding on the white horse of eternal victory, and tell every nation 
every tribe and every tongue yields a contingency that says Jesus is Lord and every nation, every tribe and every tongue and every element of them that refuses to acknowledge your Lordship is cast utterly into the abyss of hellfire judgment. We thank you for the assurance of justice eternal. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ has satisfied that justice and purchased for us life eternal. On that ground and with that hope, we take confidence and faith in your word today. In Jesus' name.